Chapter Thirty Three of Men of Iron. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. Men of Iron by Howard Pyle. Chapter Thirty Three. There was a little while of restless, rustling silence during which the constable took his place in the seat appointed for him directly in front of and below the king's throne. A moment or two when even the restlessness and the rustling were quieted, and then the king leaned forward and spoke to the constable, who immediately called out in a loud, clear voice, "'Let them go!' Then again, "'Let them go!' Then, for the third and last time, "'Let them go and do their endeavor." in God's name. At this third command, the combatants, each of whom had, till that moment, been sitting as motionless as a statue of iron, tightened rein, and rode slowly and deliberately forward without haste, yet without hesitation, until they met in the very middle of the lists. In the battle which followed, Miles fought with the long sword, the earl with the hand's arm for which he had asked. The moment they met the combat was opened, and for a time nothing was heard but the thunderous clashing and clamor of blows, now and then beating intermittently, now and then pausing. Occasionally, as the combatants spurred together, checked, wheeled, and recovered, they would be hidden for a moment in a misty veil of dust, which, again drifting down the wind, perhaps revealed them drawn a little apart, resting their panting horses. Then again they would spur together, striking as they passed, wheeling and striking again. Upon the scaffolding all was still. Only now and then for the buzz of muffled exclamations or applause of those who looked on. Mostly the applause was from Miles's friends, for from the very first he showed and steadily maintained his advantage over the older man. Ha! well struck, well recovered. Look ye, the sword bit that time. Nay, look, saw ye pass him the point of the gisarm? Then, Falworth, Falworth, as some more than unusually skillful stroke or parry occurred. Meantime, Miles's father sat straining his sightless eyes, as though to pierce his body's darkness with one ray of light that would show him how his boy held his own in the fight. And Lord Mackworth, leaning with his lips close to the blind man's ear, told him point by point how the battle stood. "'Fear not, Gilbert,' he said at each pause in the fight. "'He holdeth his own right well.' Then after a while... God is with us, Gilbert. Alban is twice wounded, and his horse felleth. One little while longer, and the victory is ours. A longer and more continuous interval of combat followed this last assurance, during which Miles drove the assault, fiercely and unrelentingly, as though to overbear his enemy by the very power and violence of the blows he delivered. The earl defended himself desperately, but was borne back, 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 farther and farther, Every nerve of those who looked on was stretched to breathless tensity, when almost as his enemy was against the barriers, Miles paused and rested. "'Out upon it!' exclaimed the Earl of Mackworth, 
almost shrilly in his excitement as the sudden lull followed the crashing of blows. Why doth the boy spare him, that is thrice he hath given him grace to recover? As he had pushed the battle that time, he had driven him back against the barriers. It was as the earl had said. Miles had three times given his enemy grace, when victory was almost in his very grasp. He had three times spared him, in spite of all he and those dear to him must suffer, should his cruel and merciless enemy gain the victory. It was a false and foolish generosity, partly the fault of his impulsive youth, more largely of his romantic training in the artificial code of French chivalry. He felt that the battle was his, and so he gave his enemy these three chances to recover, as some chevalier or knight-errant of romance might have done, instead of pushing the combat to a mercifully speedy end and his foolish generosity cost him dear. In the momentary pause that had thus stirred the Earl of Mackworth to a sudden outbreak, the Earl of Alban sat upon his panting, sweating war-horse, facing his powerful young enemy at about twelve paces distant. He sat as still as a rock, holding his gisarm poised in front of him. He had, as the Earl of Mackworth had said, been wounded twice and each time with the point of the sword, so much more dangerous than a direct cut with the weapon. One wound was beneath his armor, and no one but he knew how serious it might be. The other was under the overlapping of the epore, and from it a finger-breadth of blood ran straight down his side and over the housings of his horse. From without, the still motionless iron figure appeared calm and expressionless. Within, who knows what consuming blasts of hate, rage, and despair swept his heart as with a fiery whirlwind. As Miles looked at the motionless, bleeding figure, his breast swelled with pity. My lord, said he, thou art sore wounded, and the fight is against thee. Will thou not yield thee? No one but that other heard the speech and no one but Miles heard the answer that came back, hollow, cavernous. Never, thou dog, never! Then, in an instant, as quick as a flash, his enemy spurred straight upon Miles, and as he spurred he struck a last desperate swinging blow in which he threw in one final effort all the strength of hate, of fury, and of despair. Miles whirled his horse backward, warding the blow with his shield as he did so. The blade glanced from the smooth face of the shield, and whether by mistake or not fell straight and true, and with almost undiminished force, upon the neck of Miles's war-horse and just behind the ears. The animal staggered forward and then fell upon its knees, and at the same instant the other, as though by the impetus of the rush, dashed full upon it with all the momentum lent by the weight of iron it carried. The shock was irresistible, and the stunned and wounded horse was flung upon the ground, rolling over and over. As his horse fell, Miles wrenched one of his feet out of the stirrup. The other caught for an instant, and he was flung headlong with stunning violence, his armor crashing as he fell. 
in the cloud of dust that arose, no one could see just what happened, but that what was done was done deliberately, no one doubted. The Earl, at once checking and spurring his foaming charger, drove the iron-shod war-horse directly over Miles's prostrate body. Then, checking him fiercely with the curb, reined him back, the hooves clashing and crashing over the figure beneath. So he had ridden over the father at York, and so he rode over the son at Smithfield. Miles, as he lay prostrate and half-stunned by his fall, had seen his enemy thus driving his rearing horse down upon him, but was not able to defend himself. A fallen knight in full armor was utterly powerless to rise without assistance. Miles lay helpless in the clutch of the very iron that was his defense. He closed his eyes involuntarily, and then horse and rider were upon him, there was a deafening, sparkling crash, a glimmering faintness, and then another crash as the horse was reined furiously back again, and then a humming stillness. In a moment, upon the scaffolding, all was a tumult of uproar and confusion, shouting and gesticulation. Only the king sat calm, sullen, impassive. The earl wheeled his horse and sat for a moment or two, as though to make quite sure that he knew the king's mind. The blow that had been given was foul, unknightly, but the king gave no sign of either acquiescence or rebuke. He had willed that Miles was to die. Then the earl turned again and rode deliberately up to his prostrate enemy. When Miles opened his eyes after that moment of stunning silence, it was to see the other looming above him on his war-horse, swinging his gisarm for the one last mortal blow, pitiless, merciless. The sight of that looming peril brought back Miles' wandering senses like a flash of lightning. He flung up his shield and met the blow even as it descended, turning it aside. It only protracted the end. Once more the Earl of Alban raised the gisarm, swinging it twice around his head before he struck. This time, though the shield glanced it, the blow fell upon the shoulder-piece, biting through the steel plate and leathern jack beneath even to the bone. Then Miles covered his head with his shield as a last protecting chance for life. For the third time the Earl swung the blade flashing, and then it fell, straight and true, upon the defenseless body, just below the left arm, biting deep through the armor plates. For an instant the blade stuck fast, and that instant was Miles's salvation. Under the agony of the blow he gave a muffled cry and almost instinctively grasped the shaft of the weapon with both hands. Had the Earl let go his end of the weapon, he would have won the battle at his leisure and most easily. As it was, he struggled violently to wrench the gisarm away from Miles. In that short, fierce struggle, Miles was dragged to his knees, and then still holding the weapon with one hand, he clutched the trappings of the Earl's horse with the other. The next moment he was upon his feet. The other struggled to thrust him away, but Miles, letting go the gisarm, which he held with his left hand, 
clutched him tightly by the sword-belt in the intense vice-grip of despair. In vain the Earl strove to beat him loose with the shaft of the disarm. In vain he spurred and reared his horse to shake him off. Miles held him tight, in spite of all his struggles. He felt neither the streaming blood nor the throbbing agony of his wounds. Every faculty of soul, mind, body, and every power of life was centered on one intense burning effort. He neither felt, thought, nor reasoned, but clutching with the blindness of instinct the heavy spiked iron-headed mace that hung at the earl's saddle-bow. He gave it one tremendous wrench that snapped the plated leathern thongs that held it as though they were the skeins of thread. Then grinding his teeth as with a spasm, he struck as he had never struck before, once, twice, thrice full upon the front of the helmet. Crash! Crash! And then, even as the earl toppled sidelong, crash! And the iron plates split and crackled under the third blow. Miles had one flashing glimpse of an awful face and then the saddle was empty. Then, as he held tight to the horse, panting, dizzy, sick to death, he felt the hot blood gushing from his side, filling his body armor and staining the ground upon which he stood. Still he held tightly to the saddle bow of the fallen man's horse, until through his glimmering sight he saw the marshal, the lieutenant, and the attendants gather around him. He heard the marshal ask him, in a voice that sounded faint and distant, if he were dangerously wounded. He did not answer, and one of the attendants, leaping from his horse, opened the umbril of his helmet, disclosing the dull, hollow eyes, the ashy, colorless lips, and the waxy forehead upon which stood great beads of sweat. "'Water! Water!' he cried hoarsely. Give me to drink. Then, quitting his hold upon the horse, he started blindly across the list toward the gate of the barrier. A shadow that chilled his heart seemed to fall upon him. It is death, he muttered. Then he stopped, then swayed for an instant, and then toppled headlong, crashing as he fell. End of chapter 33 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman.